0: This is Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed.
1: Madame Babushkinov was being optimistic when she said they might leave for St. Petersburg in two days. This means there was too much optimism in her thinking. Optimachism was a rare occurrence in the Babushkinov household. In Plinkst, it was nearly unheard of. One was far more likely to encounter its opposite, which is pessimax, the maximum degree of pessimism one could endure during sinking into full-on Welsh marts. That's actor Fiona Hardingham
0: reading the sixth and final book in the prize-winning Incorrigible series, which was written by Mary Rose Wood. Since 2010, Mary Rose Wood has taken us on rollicking adventures with the incorrigible children of Ashton Place and their brave and level-headed governess, Penelope Lumley. The first five books were brought unforgettably to life by Katie Kelgren, And then after Katie's passing, the torch was picked up brilliantly by Fiona Hardingham, who closed out the series. I'm not gonna occupy a lot of your time explaining who the incorrigibles are and why we should care about them and why it is so much fun to listen to this series. Rather, I'm going to turn to author Mary Rose Wood,
2: So, The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place is a middle grade series, which means it's aimed at the 8 to 12-year-old reader, but I know from experience that my readers span a very wide age range. (laughs) Including me. um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, how lovely. Yes, plenty of grown-ups. And it's a series that's set in Victorian England. And it focuses on Miss Penelope Lumley, who's 15 years old when the tale begins. And she's a recent graduate of a school called the Swanburn Academy for Poor, Bright Females. And she's on her way to her very first job interview, and she's quite nervous. And it's at this grand, mysterious estate called Ashton Place. And she gets there, and it's a job interview for the job of governess. And the job is offered to her quite readily and she accepts and she's excited and only after she has you know committed to the position does she herself discover that the three children she's been hired to teach were actually raised by wolves they are not Lord and Lady Ashton's natural-born children at all, but they were found running wild in the, in the forest of Ashton Place while Lord Ashton was out on a hunting expedition. And uh, he catches them and he brings them back to the estate and he locks them in the barn and they decide they need a governess. So that's the setup of the series. What takes six books to first ravel and then unravel is the mystery of who these children are, who left them in the woods to be raised by wolves and why and also how that intersects with a big mystery in Penelope's own past, because her parents dropped her at the Swanburn Academy for Poor Bright Females when she was quite a little girl and never came back to get her. They're referred to uh, throughout the series as the long-lost Lumleys. So <laughs> by the time we get to the long-lost home, there many complications have ensued, and there's a you know a big cliffhanger ending at the end of book five, and Poor Penelope has been kind of exiled from her beloved incorrigibles, and the long-lost home is a true finale that draws together all the many plot threads, unsolved mysteries, lots of characters that we've seen and loved before who pop up again in unexpected ways, and the final resolution of, you know, what's been driving the story all along. So it was a remarkable experience for me as a writer to have the the space, the narrative space, you know, for which I'm eternally indebted to HarperCollins and my editor uh, Donna Bray at the Balzer and Bray imprint for just allowing this series to live in six meaty books, <laughs> and and to do all that world building and to really let the story just be as deliciously rich and and detailed as it as it grew to be.
0: What inspired this series? What inspired this idea? Those characters?
2: Uh, other than my own madness, yes, uh,
0: <laughs> or or yes, your uh, own madness, but <laughs> my own madness. What informed uh, that madness?
2: I feel you know it's like it's like opening the refrigerator. You're going to cook dinner, and you say, "Well, what do we have?" You know, I've got sun dried tomatoes and capers and some leftover pasta. Oh, and there's some kale, and it somehow turns into a meal. I feel like the mind of the writer is like a a somewhat untidy refrigerator. There are things in there (laughs) that have accumulated. Some of them are fresh, some of them are in the back, and you haven't thought about them for a while. But if you're willing to kind of look around, you'll say, oh, gosh.
0: Okay, but were there books in the back of your refrigerator of the mind that informed the incorrigibles?
2: My favorite book of all time, probably, or um, in my top three, is Jane Eyre. I've always loved the British governess. It's a wonderful genre. And and that depiction of the plucky young woman who has no advantages and who is able, just based on her own internal sense of what's right and wrong and sense, sense of self, to stand up to the forces of, of the world, you know, to speak truth to power, as we say nowadays. And I was inspired. By Jane when I was 12 years old, you know, and and read that book cover to cover more times than I can tell you and just thought that it would be wonderful to live in a world somewhat like that for a while. And I also adore animal stories. One of my other all-time favorite books is Charlotte's Web. And I love the idea of exploring the behavior of animals, the world of animals. And I often give credit to my son, who's now quite grown up. He's 20 years old. When he was a little boy, he loved the Curious George books. And that was one of our very frequent bedtime read-alouds. And George, you know, is this classic character from children's literature who's a little monkey, but he's also in many ways just a small child. You know, he just inhabits this sort of strange place of, is he a kid or is he a monkey, you know? <laughs> he's just sort of in the middle. And, and George, who really couldn't control himself you know, because he was a monkey and would cause all kinds of ruckus to happen, mayhem, as the incorrigibles call it, and then was always forgiven because he was sort of, you know, perceived as really more of a child. So this is a long-winded answer, but the mashup of a kind of an animal story where you have children who kind of have animal characteristics, but who are really children, and the good-hearted, plucky young governess who sees the good in them and always, you know, always finds a way to lead them to their higher natures, to their, their true hearts. And, of course, the truth of the matter is that these wild children who were raised by wolves and are barking and howling and have to be you know, taught not to chase squirrels turn out to ha- have a much more civilized, that's in air quotes, way of relating to the world and other people than the Lord and Lady Ashton and their society friends. So playing with some of those the subversion of those expectations is part of the fun of these of this set of characters. And you know, people are are often behaving in exactly the opposite way than they like to think they are
0: and Penelope is so young. I always have to remind myself how young she is. She's fifteen when the story begins. She's
2: fifteen when it begins, and she does celebrate her sixteenth birthday in one of the one of the books, so she's sixteen by the time we get to book six.
0: A Victorian England sixteen that is very young for all that responsibility, and she handles it so beautifully
2: she's Swanburn through and through. I conceived of the Swanburn Academy as a kind of a an antidote to the the idea of, you know, these kind of Victorian schools that were, you know, more like workhouses. The Swanburn Academy is like this wonderful, like, feminist progressive institution that, of course, never existed in Victorian England, but wouldn't it be nice if it had? And so the girls are treated with tremendous kindness and seriousness, and they're given uh, absolutely challenging liberal educations, and they are taught the virtues of pluck, optimism, and good common sense. And a lot of it is codified in the sayings of Agatha Swanburn, who was the school's founder. And so Penelope has been very well educated in a very supportive environment.
1: Agatha Swanburn, Miss Lumley felt quite sure,
2: would not succumb to nervous fits simply because she was standing alone on a train platform in a strange town with all her meager worldly goods around her, wishing that she had never had to leave her beloved school to make her own way in the world. But it could not be helped.
0: You know, you've come to the end of your story of The Incorrigibles, and it's bittersweet in a number of ways, not the least because the brilliant narrator of the first five books, Katie Kelgren, died far too young and couldn't complete the series. And I know you were friends, and I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. I knew Katie, well, too, not not well, but I just thought she was a wonderful person and a brilliant, brilliant actress. Tell me about your relationship with Katie. When did you meet? How did you meet?
2: Well, my friendship with Katie was one of the unexpected gifts that came along with the opportunity to write these books. I did not know Katie. I got a phone call one day. I guess as The Mysterious Howling, the first book in the series, was being prepared to go to press. And so the manuscript is kind of in final galleys, and that's when the audiobook narrator is brought in. And as I recall, I did not play any role in selecting the narrator. The publisher of the audiobook chose Katie, And I got a call, uh, or she might have contacted by email first, wanting to know if it was okay if we spoke. And I was thrilled, you know. I was like, oh, this is wonderful. I'm going to get to speak to the audiobook narrator. I wasn't expecting that. And I've since learned that not every author has that experience, but Katie was thorough. And Katie really wanted to talk to me and ask all of her questions about the book and I think get a sense of what my vibe was and my tone and and just part of her exhaustive preparation that she always did for every book she recorded. uh, She wanted to connect and, you know, we just fell in love with each other. I mean, we were just such perfectly suited you know sensibilities i'm so grateful that uh the powers that be had the good sense to know that she was the absolute perfect person to narrate these books i answered her questions and she made me laugh and i made her laugh and we just hit it off and that was the beginning as they say of a beautiful friendship so that would have been probably late 2009 or so that we connected or maybe 2010 and then it was this the, the books were just hers and she always went out of her way. When she had the opportunity to be on a panel or appear at an industry event, she she often said, oh, well, I'll read something from The Incorrigibles, you know, and she she would always have a great time with it. The book suited her very special talents because they're set in England and they've got lots and lots of voices and they've got animal sounds and sea shanties and, you know, all kinds of fun little add-ons. And one of the things that evolved over the writing of the books is that Katie's voice became the voice of the Incorrigibles for many of the, of the readers. But for me, she became, in a sense, my ideal reader, and I think every author sort of benefits sometimes from imagining Who's going to read the book in such a way that invites you as the writer to do your best? You know, who's going to get every single nuance? Who's going to laugh at every joke? Who's going to get every obscure literary reference? You know, if you have the confidence that your work is going to be read with such uh, perception and sensitivity, it invites you to swing for the fences. And Katie absolutely became that reader for me. I knew that After I was done with the book, and my editor and the copy editor and Katie Kellgren were going to be the first people who read it, and Katie's read, because she was reading with the intention of inhabiting the characters and inhabiting the story, was always so sensitive and responsive and appreciative, I lived for the day that Katie would read each book as it came out.
0: Never. was the wind
2: howling mournfully through the open windows while the shutters panged back and forth. Throwing down her candlestick, and for the second time that day, Penelope ran to the windows and wrestled them closed. The latch seems to have snapped, she said, but this will do until a locksmith can be summoned. Quick as a wink, she removed a hairpin and used it to secure the broken latch. Once she was done, the Admiral relit the candles.
0: Well done! Darn, governess. You would be a useful person to have along on a safari. After all, an explorer must be resourceful. Why, once when I was in Africa, I sailed down the Nile in a raft made of nothing but lashed together reeds and a
1: sail woven
0: out of palm leaves. What's for dessert?'
2: I started to put in jokes just to make her laugh. And there are things in the series that would not be there if I didn't know that, oh, Katie's really going to like this or Katie's going to curse my name when she's got to get into the studio and figure out how to do an angry ostrich sound or a a silent bunny laugh. Or, you know, I sort of put little little things in to entertain her. So it became a beautiful uh, friendship in my personal life and also a, a kind of an artistic collaboration.
0: If we think of the author as the composer and the narrator as the pianist, for example, doing that great interpretation, what Katie could do was with your books, it's almost like the wackier the character, the more realistic she could make it. Mm. But at the same time, she was the perfect Penelope, which is so crucial because if you have a Penelope that you don't believe or is too preachy or it's a character that could go wrong in so many ways, and she just <laughs> did it so well, I thought.
2: Of course, you're absolutely right. And I have gotten over the years countless items of fan mail, whether email or written down and with pictures drawn as children love to do. And so many families know my books because of the audiobooks. These are the stories that accompanied them on their family road trips, their summer vacations, their summer holidays. Or the whole family sat around at bedtime and listened to a chapter together, and it became like the family read aloud. The timing of The Long Lost Home, it's a long book. It's the longest book in the series. And it became sadly clear, I think, to both Katie and I during the last year of her life that the book, you know, might not be finished in time for her to to do it. And this is the, you know, the true bittersweet ending is that, as you say, you know, Katie became Penelope and the voice of the books to so many and and in many ways to me. But by the time book six was finished, she was, you know, not going to be well enough to do it. And um, the book was is still being edited when Katie was Uh, you know, in her last weeks. And she, she was so sorry that she couldn't do it. You know, she and I were on the phone for a long time. And the book is dedicated to her. And I write about this in the acknowledgments that appear at the end of the book. In our last long phone conversation, she asked me to read aloud to her from the book. And so that was one of the the moments that we shared as part of saying our goodbyes as friends, that she was so sorry that she wasn't going to get to do it, and she wanted me to read to her. So I read her a chunk of the first chapter over the phone, and we cried. And also got her, not her blessing, well, her blessing, but also her stern instruction, because Katie didn't mess around, you find somebody wonderful to do it. And I'm so glad that we were able to, and I'm so grateful, and I do want to say this from the bottom of my heart, the wonderful audiobook narrator Fiona Hardingham, who stepped in and recorded book six and has done an absolutely magnificent job and did it not only with all her talent and professionalism, but with a true sense of appreciation for the very special situation that she was in, stepping into this world that Katie had created, kind of stepping in, carrying the torch forward for this last book understanding that there were going to be people who were very attached to Katie's choices about things and showing such grace and respect and, uh, you know, pure class. So I just want to have a shout out to Fiona who did such a magnificent
1: job. Fortunately for us, we can return to Ashton Place simply by reading about it. And so we shall. Thanks to the tireless efforts of Mrs. Clark, the baby's room is nearly finished. And surely that is well worth a look. Hold on now! I've almost got it! There! Mrs. Clark was not a small woman, nor a young one, but she scurried down the ladder as nimbly as a squirrel. After several tries, the painting she had been trying to hang on the wall was now perfectly centred between the windows of the sunny bedchamber that was being readied for the new baby.
0: I want to give her a shout-out as well, because having gone through the first five books with Katie, it's hard to not look at the next narrator as almost an interloper in some ways. And Fiona's reading is so good. It's just lovely. She she takes you into that story and helps make you forget about the circumstances that led her to be the person telling it.
2: It was certainly bittersweet for the readers because, you know, unless they were following my social media accounts or those of us in the, in the children's publishing or the audiobook community, we all knew Katie. She was a star in our world. But you know, for the readers out there, they didn't. They didn't get the news that Katie had passed away. And so, when the book came out in June, there were a lot of people who were just getting that news, who who found that out. Through the experience. So I found myself being uh, in the position of having to say, oh, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this now. <laughs> you know, people would write to me. They would say, what? There's someone else's name on the book. What happened? You know, you know, I, I had to kind of step back into the early stages of grief and say, oh, no, well, you know, now the larger world will find out. And uh, this is true, I'm sure, of uh, other projects that, that Katie was in the middle of and other series. There were families out there, you know, who wrote to me and said, you know, we, we really agree. We really felt that Katie became part of our family through the shared experience of these books. And we welcome Fiona. We love her, too, and we welcome her. But we had, we had to grieve when we found out.
0: Yeah, Fiona was very brave and very talented. Very, very well, talented.
2: Well, I live in Los Angeles now. I, I haven't for very long. I'm a native New Yorker, and I moved out here. And I didn't know that Fiona is a West Coast person too. But I was so grateful after we chose her to discover that she, in fact, lives in Los Angeles. So I want to say, you know, the tradition continues. Fiona and I went out for coffee to meet and to high five each other and wish speed, But we ended up talking for hours and we had a wonderful time and I adore her and we're hopefully going to be getting together soon to, for some socializing. So I felt wonderful that she, both as a person and as a talent, uh, just was a very welcome member of Team Incorrigible, as we say. And uh, I hope we are become just as good friends.
0: Can you talk a little bit, you know, muse about that strange alchemy that happens between the narrator and the author?
2: Oh, wow. It's such a great question. I started my career as an actor, and I did that for a while, and I blossomed from my desire to immerse myself in storytelling by portraying characters into what felt the writer choice for me personally of wanting to immerse myself in storytelling by being the person who made up the characters and who invented the story. But I have an actor's DNA and I absolutely adore the process of of another person's sensibility sort of coming in to the text and making, you know, bringing it to life, bringing it off the page. I always imagine my work being read aloud. I think that all sensible authors should pay close attention to what their words sound like when read aloud because the reader's experience is an auditory one. You know, we when we read, we we have a tendency to sort of hear the words in our head anyway. So it's part of fluent writing for it to, to sound good when spoken. But narrating a book is not quite the same as acting on the stage, is it? Because you want to find that beautiful sweet spot between performing the book in this wildly external way while also preserving the intimacy of the reader's relationship with the book because when we read it one of the things that gives such deep pleasure to people who love to read is this experience that it's happening in your own head it's the holodeck from star trek you know you've you've immersed yourself bodily emotionally intellectually spiritually in this world it's an intimate intimate merging And so the artful narrator manages to bring it all to life while still allowing the reader to have that direct experience with the book. And I mean, that's how I think of it. And I try to do the same. I mean, as a writer, I use my tools, words, and punctuation marks. It's all we've got as writers, you know. And, And when the book is illustrated, you know, that becomes another source of creative input. But I try to use those tools to create an experience that is so seamless for the reader that they, they forget that they're reading. It's what you dream of is they're sitting on the bus reading and they miss their stop because they weren't on the bus. They were at Ashton Place. Or, you know, they were in the forest marching around with the incorrigibles. You know, they've just lost themselves in it. So I feel like we're all attempting that same kind of magical alchemy to bring this story out of story heaven, wherever stories come from, and to channel them to the readers. It's always, always for the reader.
0: And that's the third leg of that triangle is that the reader slash listener, that's what we love. We love to be transported. And and that's our part. That's how we join in that alchemy as well. It's what we hope for.
2: Yeah. The book's not finished until it comes to life in the imagination of the reader, for sure. And whether that happens by someone reading the text off the page or from listening to the skillful audiobook narrator bring it to life and add their own sparkle and interpretation and energy and color to it. uh, It doesn't matter. It's still the same experience for the reader. And and if if they're transported, then we've all done our jobs well.
0: Mary Rose, we've said goodbye to the incorrigibles. What is next on your docket?
2: Oh, well, you know, I'm never going to say full goodbye to these beautiful characters. We'll see. We'll see what happens with them. Um, I'm very much hoping that we move forward with some kind of um, television series adaptation. That is definitely something that's in the works right now. And I have my fingers crossed that it will bloom. And I'm working on a new book. I have a new middle grade book. The title is Alice's Farm, A Rabbit's Tale. And I guess kind of like uh, Incorrigible was very driven by how inspired I found Jane Eyre. Alice's Farmer Rabbit's Tale is very inspired by my love for Charlotte's Web. It's a story that takes place on a farm, but it's a very 21st century take on a Charlotte's Web type story. There are animals, there are people, but it's a look at where we stand right now in terms of our relationship to the land and to farming and animals and um, how we can all be better stewards of the earth.
0: Wonderful timing.
2: Yeah, I think it, it's definitely a book of my heart, and I feel like it's a good time for me to be working on a book about this. And it'll be funny, too, because I, you know, I like to be funny. But I love, I love writing a set of rabbit characters. It's making me so happy. And the research is you know, just great. I'm like, what do, what do cottontails like to eat best, you know? You know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to it because I share your love of Charlotte's Web. I think it's a perfect oh. book. And I think The Incorrigibles was this rollicking journey that I just loved being on that ride with you. So thank you. Oh,
2: Oh, thank you. That's so lovely to hear. It was such a pure pleasure to write. I really adored writing this series. Thank you so much. This is uh, such a pleasure to do. I'm really grateful to talk about my books with you and to revisit my relationship with Katie, which is such a special part of
0: my life. And it was a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. That was author Mary Rose Wood, whose series The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place has just concluded with the sixth and final book, The Long Lost Home, which was read by Fiona Hardingham. You can find reviews for all six books and hundreds more at audiophilemagazine.com. This has been Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. Thanks for listening.